0: So what I'm going to be talking to you about today is my master's research, which um, I actually began as a field technician on this project four years ago, and it turned into a master's program in the spring of May, or of 2015 in May. Um, And so I'm sort of entering into my third year. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about um, some background to help you understand uh, the work that I'm doing on the Central Coast. Um, and then also sort of some preliminary results from the work that I've been doing. So, Before I really get into what I'm going to be talking about though, I first need to acknowledge that uh, I'm going to try really hard to not refer to this as my field site because it actually, all this research has taken place in the traditional unceded territory of the Oikono First Nation on the central coast of BC and I also want to acknowledge that we're currently standing on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam First Nation here in Vancouver. So... um, I'm going to embed this talk in the context of working with an indigenous nation because it has been the most remarkable uh, experience of my entire life. I feel so privileged. Um, and while I was working in Wicano, I actually got to participate in a potlatch ceremony. And I'm not sure how familiar people are with the potlatch, but at the potlatch, there's a very important principle that most Westerners are not familiar with that is practiced, and that is that as a guest, you are incredibly honoured because you're actually performing a very important social function. You're witnessing a very important event and then you're taking those stories and you have the obligation to share what you've seen. So it's an honourable role but it's one that comes with responsibilities. There are no passive witnesses. It's an active role. So as a scientist in this environment, I feel as though I am a witness for the stories that the fish are telling me through the data that I'm collecting. And I have a responsibility to share those stories. And you are all witnesses today of this story. And so that comes with obligations as well, to think critically about the things that you're hearing and to spread this message also to other people that you come in contact with. So this is the lesson of the potlatch that I'd like to to sort of start with and, and also end with. But... Mostly, I'm going to be talking about Pacific salmon and, unfortunately, declines in wild Pacific salmon here in British Columbia. And salmon are extraordinarily important. Most people are quite familiar with this, um, but they really are the ecological, cultural, and economic, or many years were the economic backbone of our province and of many places in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Salmon are anadromous, which means that they live for part of their life in freshwater. That's where they're born. Um, I'm not sure. There's the pointer. There we go. So here's the freshwater phase of their life. Um, And they sort of grow up amongst the gravel in the stream. And then at a certain point in the spring of the year, they start to head seaward. Um, And the reason for this is that the stream is a very safe place but it doesn't have a whole lot of food. So eventually, in order to grow and reach maturity, they head out into the very, very productive, hopefully productive, but very dangerous ocean. And when they're in the ocean, they spend several years, usually between one year and five years in the cases of some of the larger Pacific salmon species, like Chinook salmon. Uh, And then they return back to their natal stream, back to the place where they were born and uh, with varying degrees of site fidelity. So uh, sockeye will probably end up in almost the exact same tributary as uh, it was born in, which is really, really remarkable. And this is what makes them an ecological cornerstone, because not only are they living between these two environments, but they are going out to the ocean, feeding, getting larger, and then they're bringing their bodies as a multivitamin back into the environment that they originated in and they're fertilizing our forests and our coasts. I like to think of them as the most generous species that I've ever encountered because without them we wouldn't have rainforest here. We wouldn't have the incredible abundance and diversity of life that we have here. And we wouldn't have these rich uh, indigenous cultures that have existed for millennia on our coast if it wasn't for this relationship with the salmon as well. So here's some pictures from the the area in Wekenau territory, Rivers Inlet, where I've been working. There are a large population of grizzly bears there. Um, And these bears will take the salmon from the streams when they're returning to spawn, and they'll take them into the forest habitat. And then you'll find this marine-derived nitrogen from those salmon in the very tops of these huge spruce trees growing in the valley bottoms. So it really is incredibly remarkable how pervasive the role of the salmon is Uh, on the central coast and throughout British Columbia. But uh, we are in worrying times. Um, These graphs are showing us the decline of sockeye salmon throughout British Columbia. Can everybody hear me if I walk up here and point? Okay. So this is showing us several different stocks of sockeye salmon, um, and one sort of unifying factor with most of them is that sometime around the 1990s, we start to see pretty serious declines in the numbers of spawners returning. So these are uh, productivity index, sort of a relative index for each of those stocks. Um, And then we've got time on the x-axis. So these are groups of sockeye salmon that spawn in the Fraser River in the south of the province. Um, They've been in decline since about that time. Um, Washington State and Barkley Sound on Vancouver Island, we see the same thing happening. Uh, some pretty serious declines since the mid-1990s. Um, and here on the Central Coast, the Owekano stock, the blue is the population that I've been working with the sockeye salmon, and they also suffered a fairly catastrophic decline in the 1990s. Um, and none of these stocks have really rebounded to their pre-crash levels at this point. So what is going on? Well, one thing that we notice in broad-scale geographic terms is that we can actually find this line where, to the north of it, productivity of salmon, especially sockeye salmon, seems to be okay. Alaskan sockeye, Bristol Bay sockeye, you may have heard of. That stock seems to be doing all right. But below this line, throughout coastal Alaska here and British Columbia, and especially Washington State, we see that same general trend of the productivity of all salmon populations, but especially sockeye salmon populations, is in decline. And there are a number of differences between these regions. For one, there's a lot more people located in the area south of the line, Um, and there's a lot more intensive exploitation of the environment through logging. Um, Fishing has always been strong to the north of the line as well, but uh, other human activities seem to be more concentrated. Though the fact that we see such a broad-scale geographic uh, decline across multiple stocks points to something that's happening at a very large scale. So one set of researchers, uh, Randall Peterman and one of his graduate students at Simon Fraser proposed a, a number of things that could be going on. They link it to climate change. And they ask if something like a pathogen could be acting at a very broad regional scale, something that the fish could be passing to one another in the open ocean environment and then bringing back to their respective spawning habitats. Um, another thing that we see south of that line that we do not see north of that line is a much higher concentration of Atlantic salmon aquaculture. Alaska does not practice Atlantic salmon aquaculture, so that's another big difference And One of the big outstanding questions today is actually what is the role of those fish farms, those open net pen fish farms, uh, in transmitting pathogens to wild salmon stocks. However, um, that is a very new topic of pursuit. And traditionally, the causes of decline have really been blamed on these two things. Habitat alteration. So whenever we do clear-cut logging in the terrestrial environment, especially in rainforest where there's ample rainfall, you remove the trees, you remove the ability of the land to stabilize itself, uh, and you get a lot of siltation and runoff into the stream environments where those juvenile salmon are trying to rear. And so that can be a very big problem for them. Also, we have an incredibly long history of fishing, and especially around the 1890s until about the 1950s, we had the world's largest canning industry. In Rivers Inlet, where I've been working alone, there were 12 salmon canneries. Each one of those canneries was processing a million fish or more per year. So there was a very heavy exploitation of salmon um, that continues in some cases to this day. One thing that we're now also aware of, is that climate change can be uh, on its own causing problems or exacerbating some of these historically pointed to causes for decline. So, for example, climate change may be changing rainfall patterns, patterns of drought and patterns of intense rain, uh, and that can interact with an environment that's already been degraded by logging to cause greater problems for the fish. Um, Alternatively, An overexploited population is one that now has lower genetic diversity because there are fewer individuals. And once those fish, those few individuals, are now in warmer waters and dealing with scarcer food that may be a result of climate change, Um, those few surviving individuals are now going to be having a much more difficult time. So there are interactions between all of these stressors. Infectious disease is what I work in. And this is something that has been acknowledged as a cause uh, stress on wildlife populations. However, it's not one that has really classically been pointed to for uh, causing extinctions. But uh, what I hope to be able to show you are some scenarios where it could be interacting with other stressors um, to be creating a conservation problem. Um, And we know, for example, with Climate change, increasing water temperatures in stream environments. A lot of bacteria grow better under warmer conditions. Um, Also, fish and other animals that live typically in cold water, they're going to be under stress. They're going to be taxed by warmer water conditions and possibly more susceptible to infectious disease. So we have these interactions taking place um, with infectious disease as well as with the other stressors. So some more uh, readily acknowledged examples of infectious disease-causing problems uh, have been noted in terrestrial or freshwater environments. So this is a bat with the um, fungus that causes white-nose syndrome, which is uh, epidemic and epizootic, if you will, that's sweeping across North America. There have been bats on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia who have been found to carry this white-nose fungus, um, and this is causing terrible uh, devastation in, among a lot of native bat populations. Um, another one which has a strong interaction with climate change is chytridiomycosis, which is a fungal infection of amphibians and is probably one of the single most important drivers of amphibian extinctions in Central America and South America right now. Um, not too long ago there were also bacterial infections that ripped through taiga antelope populations in Kazakhstan. We're aware of these because we have bodies to see and we can follow up with pathological testing. Um, but in the marine environment often we're not so lucky and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, first I just want to define a couple things before I continue. Uh, pathogen, I'm going to be referring to pathogens. I focus specifically on viruses, but I'm going to define a pathogen here as any parasite or microparasite, including fungi, bacteria, um, and macroparasites. And a disease is any state, any syndrome that is caused by one of these contagious pathogens. So why, though, when we have some evidence of epidemics causing um, wildlife uh, extinctions or declines, has this been a historically overlooked driver of these issues? And one reason is because most diseases, most pathogens, are a density-dependent function. So their transmission relies upon contact rates between individuals. And where you have lots of individuals you have a high transmission rate, and this is where you see an epidemic. But where you have few individuals, a low population density, the situation you might arrive at after an epidemic has caused a population crash, there are few individuals, and so there is a low contact rate, and the disease should therefore fade out. So transmission increases with increasing density, then we reach a situation where we have um, peak transmission, and a crash and what is predicted theoretically is that then the pathogen just can't transmit effectively and that epidemic fades away and so it leaves us with a few animals left and it should never drive those populations to extinction. There are some reasons though why we should pay attention to uh, infectious disease and wildlife as conservation biologists Um, And there are some scenarios in which this theoretical uh, model of density dependence might actually be flipped on its head and still cause serious issues. So one reason is that even if it's not driving a population to extinction, disease can still deplete a population. It can bring it to the point where it's crashing. And then you're left with very few individuals. And very few individuals are always going to be vulnerable to random events, um, environmental events, other diseases, other stressors. Um, With some populations that are being actively managed for recovery, disease issues could be preventing management or they could be uh, thwarting very expensive and very time-consuming conservation activities. So uh, we shouldn't be simply ignoring the role of infectious disease. Another thing that we should pay attention to is that infectious disease may also necessitate management decisions, like the culling of individuals or the alteration of habitat to break the cycle of disease transmission. So not only can the disease itself be causing a problem in wildlife, but the actions taken to actually deal with that um, are, sometimes require some drastic measures. And lastly, which I touched upon before, infectious disease can be acting alone, but more likely uh, it's acting with the whole host of other stressors like over-exploitation, habitat de- degradation, and climate change, um, among others. So scenarios in which we might actually expect to see infectious disease cause uh, extinction or a serious depletion of a wildlife population. In this scenario, there's just a small number of animals left after a population crash. And those individuals are going to be genetically more homogeneous than the larger, broader population. And that's just because diversity tends to scale with population size. So where you have lots of individuals, you have high genetic diversity. Where you have few individuals, you typically will have lower genetic diversity. And that's a really big deal with immunological diversity, um, the ability of a species to have diverse enough genes to deal with any pathogens that have uh, been encountered before in that species' evolutionary history, and also to have like a broader toolkit to deal with novel pathogens. Um, so even if it wasn't uh, an epidemic that caused an initial population crash, you leave that... Um, Smaller population, more vulnerable to future epidemics, regardless of how it got to be a smaller population. Another scenario in which infectious disease could be a bigger problem for wildlife is when we're dealing with novel pathogens or introduced pathogens and naive hosts. So hosts who basically have their first line of defense as their innate immune response, which all of us animals possess... Um, but they don't have learned immunity, uh, B cell and T cell immunity that you would get from exposure to a pathogen and from evolution, coevolution with a suite of pathogens. So an example of this is the Ebola virus that we've just witnessed what has happened in West Africa. Um, so... Ebola lives in the jungle, it's circulated through small mammal populations, and occasionally it spills over into other wildlife hosts. And either through these hosts or through the bats directly, occasionally people will pick it up, um, possibly through direct contact, eating bush meat, um, various different routes. But people are not the main host of this virus. And so when they catch it, it has a much greater negative consequence to them than it would be to one of the hosts that has been co-evolving for a very long time with that virus. Another situation more relevant to what I'm talking about right now though is the bringing of salmon from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean with any of the microparasites that they may have been carrying in that environment and now here they are in our environment and our wild Pacific salmon are being exposed to those new pathogens that they could have brought with them. And lastly, um, where you have a pathogen that can infect multiple different hosts, that's actually going to free it from density dependence. So now a population such as, um, say, a remnant population of mountain gorillas, because there are so many other animals that are able to sustain the Ebola virus, it doesn't matter that there are very few gorilla hosts. And so those animals are going to be suffering as though there was enough of them to keep up that transmission between um, themselves, just because of these alternate hosts that can uh, harbor an active infection and transmit it. Um, And again, in an example more relevant to this situation, we've got high-density Atlantic salmon fish farms that are able to circulate a pathogen, These are also individuals that are being subsidized with food and being protected from their um, natural enemies, so they're able to keep those long-term chronic infections going. They may be passing it to abundant wild fish stocks, such as resident trout um, living in coastal environments, and they may also be transmitting it to smaller remnant host populations, such as uh, sockeye salmon that have already experienced overfishing um, or population declines caused by other factors. So this is the same type of scenario where we might have multiple hosts who are able to sustain a virus so that it's impacting that one small vulnerable population more than it would if that um, one pathogen, one host scenario existed where the pathogen could fade out when there are few enough individuals. So that brings me to the work that I'm doing. I am looking at viral diseases in the river's inlet, or Wanakwaksawa, as it's called, uh, environment, and what drew me to this environment was actually my supervisor's involvement uh, in it prior to me. I don't know if any of you remember this headline from 2011, but uh, this was during the Cohen Commission um, for the Decline of the Fraser River Sockeye, and they had actually just closed The Cohen Commission and uh, Justice Cohen was making his recommendations when my supervisor, Rick Rutledge, was seining for sockeye for a totally unrelated reason, science reason, in Rivers Inlet and just happened to screen some of these for salmon aquaculture-related viruses. And they found that two of the juvenile sockeye out of the 40 or so that they captured on one occasion tested positive for infectious salmon anemia virus. This reopened the Cohen Commission. Um, It allowed DFO scientist Christy Miller to testify under oath about viral-related mortality signatures that she was seeing in the Fraser River sockeye. Um, And really, this kicked off the recent age of exploration into the role of infectious disease in wild salmon populations in BC. So this is why I'm working in that environment here it is, Rivers Inlet is in the southern end of the Great Bear Rainforest on the central coast of uh, British Columbia. Here we are in Vancouver. It takes about two and a half hours by float plane to get up here. There are no roads. Um, this is a closer image of Rivers Inlet. A in no Village is sort of the population centre. There's about 30 to 50 people who live there year-round. Um, mostly members of the O First Nation. Then we've got a few uh, residents living on float homes lower down the inlet, but it's a very, very quiet and very beautiful place. And I've been so privileged to be working in this environment. This is um, right here at the head of the inlet. This mountain overlooks um, what everybody's doing. It's a very very special place Um, and it's one where you might not expect at first blush to see aquaculture associated virus. Here's Rivers Inlet. Um, These red dots on the figure are the concentrations of salmon aquaculture farms in British Columbia. So we've got quite a large cluster in the Discovery Islands off of Campbell River We've got some in the Broughton Archipelago, also along the migration pathway of the Fraser River sockeye. Um, And we've got this third concentration, West Coast Vancouver Island. Rivers Inlet sockeye, however, they come out and they mill around on the central coast uh, for a few months before they head out to the open ocean, but they're not encountering any high-density salmon farms. There's a few in the Clem II region, but uh, that's, it's only about five compared to 50 or so in the Discovery Islands and Broughton Archipelago area. Um, so this population of sockeye salmon, you wouldn't really be thinking should be carrying aquaculture-associated viruses. And to give you a little bit more background on it, it uh, was actually the second or third largest run of sockeye salmon in British Columbia historically. Um, Sort of it traded off year for year with the run of sockeye that would return to the Skeena River in Prince Rupert area. Um, and for millennia, it has sustained the Oikino First Nation and some of their neighbors to the north and south who come to take advantage of that run of fish as well. Uh, like I said earlier, it sustained a booming fish canning industry. The way that we've been able to actually work out the size of the population historically was counting cans of salmon. Um, This one in particular is near and dear to my heart. It's a cannery called Wadhams. Nothing much left uh, except for the pilings now, but this is a place that I was responsible for taking care of as a winter caretaker once, not too long ago. Um, And here's another picture just showing you the scale of the salmon canning that was being done in this area. Um, Those are all cans, yep, it's a wall of salmon cans. So this horrifying figure, I need to change the colors, but uh, this is showing you the size of the sockeye run. Oops, coming back. Gotta not lean on the switch there. So the red is showing you catch. That is what the canneries were bringing in. That is what the commercial fishing industry uh, post-1950 was catching. And the blue is escapement. So blue we only have a measure of after 1954. Um, And escapement is the number of fish that are actually escaping being caught by people and making it into the streams to spawn. So we don't have any data on that prior to 1954. But after 1954 or thereabouts, we can see that um, there was still more fish escaping back to their streams to spawn than were being caught in most cases. Um, But we had some pretty big banner years, three-ish million fish coming back in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, And then in the 1980s and 90s, things started to become a little bit less stable. The commercial fishery was actually closed down permanently in 1996 after some pretty serious downturns, some very poor um, catch years, and was eliminated in 1996. Uh, Since that time, however, the population hasn't recovered. It crashed to a point where in the year 2000, 3,500 fish came back um, from a stock that once could be 3.5 million. And... The latest return uh, that we had this past summer was only about 150,000 fish. So even with zero fishing pressure whatsoever, this stock has crashed, and it doesn't really show signs of coming back to its former strength. So that brings me to my question. Is the sustained depression of the river's inlet sockeye related to the impacts of infectious disease? Because so far the jury's still out, um, people have looked at logging, they've looked at ocean productivity, they've looked at over-exploitation, and none of these things does a very good job of explaining what happened to these fish. So my objectives in asking this question are twofold. First, I wanted to engage with the community to develop a pathogen monitoring system so that we could uh, understand what is there Um, and its distribution in different species of salmon and trout, different age classes within those species, and different fine-scale geographic regions. And with that information, hopefully, we will start to be able to tease apart how viruses are transmitted and whether or not we're seeing any impacts. And that is the second part of the objective, and that is to understand whether or not these viruses are even having an impact at all because all of us, if you didn't already know this, we all carry a great deal of viruses and and pathogens in general. Um, But a lot of the time our immune system takes care of them for us and it's no big deal. Uh, And there are also viruses and bacteria that are just totally benign. So it's important not just to document the presence of something but also to understand whether or not it has an impact that can be measured. So of all of the things that I'm screening for, um, Piscine riovirus or picine orthoreovirus, PRV, is sort of my focal virus. Is this a virus that anybody has heard about? It's been in the news from time to time uh, pretty recently and continuously over the past four or five years now. It is, and this is just demonstrated um, with an exceptionally careful paper a week ago We now know that piscine rheovirus is definitely the causal agent for the disease heart and skeletal muscle inflammation. Um, So this is a condition that results in lesions in the skeletal muscle of Atlantic salmon, um, loses a lot of profit for the aquaculture industry just due to unmarketable meat. If you ever see farmed salmon in uh, grocery stores, you might notice that there are pieces cut out of those fillets. Often that is to remove these unsightly um, lesions that end up in the muscle tissue. Um, The other thing that it does is heart and skeletal muscle inflammation inflames the heart. So both of these um, are pretty serious problems for for the fish. Um, 75 to 90% of Atlantic salmon in British Columbia test positive for this virus, Um, and Numerous outbreaks have recently been documented, but the farming industry is a little bit opaque, so it's a bit difficult to find out when these things are happening. Um, So it does result in significant losses due to unmarketable salmon. Um, But for the farmed fish, it actually amounts to more of a long-term chronic infection, and when they do develop the disease heart and skeletal muscle inflammation, only about 20% of them will typically die. But again, this is a scenario where they're being protected and they're being fed. And because it results in erratic swimming and lethargy and a reduced cardiovascular capacity, we might imagine that this particular virus and disease may have more serious consequences for wild fish that are not being protected and are not being subsidized. So this is why it's my focal virus. So what did viral surveillance entail? It entailed some wonderful, wonderful field experiences working with some incredible people in the most remote and beautiful places that I've ever seen. I am so lucky. Um, We tried to look at salmon from all different stages of their lives. So we set up these traps in the freshwater environment in order to catch the young of year fry as they were just emerging from the gravel. Um, We also worked with large seine nets out in the ocean environment to capture the early ocean phase salmon as they were swimming seaward. Um, We worked in the river environment. Um, I worked gill netting with the Weakono Fisheries crew uh, in order to catch uh, adult sockeye and adult chinook salmon. And then I also worked both angling and using a gill net setup, um, which is quite exciting, to catch... Uh, trout, resident trout living in that environment so that we could look at them as well. So there's just another example of that uh, young life stage fish trap called a Fike Net. My assistant Melanie and I working in the marine environment. Uh, my supervisor Rick and our friend Dwayne seining. Here's our gillnet setup that we would actually deploy from inflatable kayaks that we would backpack into some of these very remote lake environments um, and then inflate and then set 300 foot long uh, gillnets with. So it was a little bit arduous to gather all of these samples, um, but it was also a lot of fun. And when we caught a fish, what we would do is we would set up a pop-up field lab where using disposable um, work surfaces, we were able to maintain fairly aseptic technique, um, clean tools for every fish, and we were able to sample um, and document the condition of each of the fish that we caught. So we've got both qualitative and quantitative information on every single one of those fish. And then we took pieces of each of those organs, um, preserved them in a viral buffer solution, Uh, for later molecular analysis. So, objective one, what have we found? We've found that PRV, piscine rheovirus, is present. It's quite ubiquitous, but it's at a very low level. So we found that 10% or so of the resident trout over these three years have tested positive for piscine rheovirus. And then for the sockeye and the chinook salmon, Um, We've actually found a very similar infection rate of around 2.5%, and it doesn't matter which life stage you're looking at. So they are a little bit less infected, uh, it seems, than the trout. Um, And trout also accounts for three different species, the Dolly Varden char, the cutthroat trout, and the rainbow trout. Um, So the take-home from this particular finding is that we have a scenario where multiple host species are in fact infected by this virus. Um, So we're at this scenario where it's possible that if this virus had a negative impact, it has ample hosts available to be persistent through time and cause an impact. Um, Like I said, trout appear to sustain a higher overall infection rate Um, That could possibly be due to the fact that they may have a tolerance. They're not being impacted because um, of some aspect of their physiology or immunology. Um, But also what this means is that since this population in Rivers Inlet is distant from fish farms these salmon that are traveling out of the system being in the ocean and then eventually coming back are probably acquiring this virus initially through contact with other wild salmon so it's demonstrating a pathway that is probably not as uh common as say Fraser River fish swimming directly past fish farms but there must be some wild to wild sockeye to sockeye Mm -hmm. transmission occurring in the ocean environment But so what? You detect a virus, like I said, that's only part of the battle. Now, if you want to look at impact, you have to uh, turn to some other techniques. But we do have a problem here. And the problem is that it is extremely difficult to see the impacts of a viral infection because in the ocean environment, when something is remotely compromised, it becomes a snack pretty quickly. And there's lots of predators out there that are just waiting to take any compromised fish and eat it. But there are some techniques that can be used. We can look to differential survival to infer mortality. And we can also look at sort of molecular indications, molecular warning signs um, that predict The development of disease, or show us that the fish is having a physiological immune response to the presence of a virus. So both of these things can help us to learn about impacts. So one of the things that I'm doing is employing this inference technique by looking at um, the distribution of virus in the fish. So this is Rivers Inlet, This is the out-migration pathway of the juvenile sockeye salmon. They leave from the lake, and they eventually make their way out to the ocean. But along the way, they have a bit of a gauntlet to run, um, right here in the upper inlet. And the reason for this is that predators are quite cued into seasonal patterns, and this is a smorgasbord for them. The fish are also exceptionally vulnerable and stressed out already because they're moving from a freshwater environment into a saltwater environment. So physiologically, they're having to learn how to osmoregulate in a different salinity. So that stresses them out. That keeps them up near the surface of the water. And that makes them pretty easy pickings for a lot of these predators. So I sampled them in a week in Lake in the freshwater before they left And then I also sampled them lower down in the ocean environment, about 40, 50 kilometers away, once they'd had several weeks to acclimatize the saltwater environment. And what I'm looking for is a change in the amount of virus that you see in the population between point A and point B. We call this a truncated load distribution. And this graph is a theoretical graph of the results that I would expect to see if a virus is causing an impact to mortality. So, on the y-axis we've got the number of individuals, and on the x-axis we've got the number of parasites, you could think of this as the amount of virus that each individual has. And this is a very typical distribution where a lot of hosts have very little virus. But a few unlucky individuals have a lot of virus. And so as these juvenile sockeye are swimming from the lake environment out into the ocean, if that virus is resulting in mortality, what we're going to see at the second time point is this, where now we've lost those individuals that have a really high virus load. And this would be an indirect way of inferring that the virus is causing a fitness consequence and making them more likely to die before they make it to that second time point. Why am I saying mortality and not just clearing the infection? Because animals can get better from viral infections. Um, The reason I'm I'm inferring mortality is because research with Atlantic salmon has shown that they can remain infective for 41 weeks. And even after they're no longer infective, they can sustain a high level of viral infection for 67 weeks. And I'm sampling within a six-week time period. So these fish are not having the opportunity to clear this infection. And if they're missing from the population at the second time point, it likely means that they're no longer around. So, this is in progress. I unfortunately don't have any real data to show you, but in theory, this is what I would see. Um, This is supported by some studies that have worked with sockeye and other environments in British Columbia. Chilco Lake on the Fraser system, is a really big sockeye system. Um, And a recent research project through Fisheries and Oceans Canada, in fact, took uh, gill samples, just tiny little clips of the gill filaments of smolts, so juvenile sockeye, leaving that lake, and they also tagged them so that they could follow the individual fates of those fish. And what they ended up finding when they did analyses on those tissue samples from the fish is that 15% of the smol- smolts showed an activated immune system. And those fish that had activated immunity were 44 times more likely to go missing before the next checkpoint where they uh, found the fish again. So one gene in particular, um, called MX, seemed to be mo- like very responsible for that difference, difference between survival groups. And that gene is associated with uh, an immune response to a viral infection. So what this means here, the black bar is showing you those fish that died immediately upon release after they were um, tagged and freed. They also controlled for just the effects of tagging, found that they shouldn't have been dying from that alone. Um, And those fish that had a stronger MX antiviral gene response were the ones that were dying very quickly, and those without that response were living a lot longer. They were finding them at the Fraser Estuary, even, um, several hundred kilometers away. So this is something that I'm hoping to look at with my fish as well, this antiviral gene response. And what it's telling us, not only does the fish have a viral infection, um, because MX gene expression increases, with increased viral load inside a host fish. But it's also representative of a cost to the fish. We don't get to have it all. We have to make trade-offs with where we allocate our energy. So what this blue axis is showing you is that um, as you have increased MX expression, gene expression, you are increasingly allocating more and more of your energy to that transcriptional machinery to produce that immune response It costs you energy. And then there's an inverse relationship with the amount of energy you have remaining for other activities, for escaping predators, for survival and reproduction and feeding. So an immune response itself has a cost and can be considered an impact of a viral infection. And like I said earlier, as soon as a fish is compromised, a fish becomes lunch. So some of my preliminary results looking at this uh, have been pretty surprising. What we're looking at here is um, sort of a more old, uh, old-fashioned old lab molecular technique where um, I'm visualizing different gene products that I've looked for in my fish's genomes. So, what we're looking at here in the red, these here, and these here, and these here, those are juvenile uh, Wekeno sockeye. And what this is telling me is that uh, all of their nucleic acids, their RNA is intact, so I'm not looking at degraded samples. And it's telling me that, even though I was just looking at two fish, one of the two shows an activated immune response a very strong positive for an activated immune response. Similarly uh, in some of the Wanak Chinook salmon so different species different life stage um, it's a little bit messy in the middle here but these two fish out of the four that I tested are also showing that strong antiviral response. So that was a bit of preliminary data that inspired me to keep going down this road of inquiry. And so here again, uh, this is just a a snapshot of the 70 adult sockeye that I've screened just recently. Very interestingly, every single one of them has a very strong marker for antiviral response. Equally interesting uh, is that I don't have a similarly strong response for piscine rheovirus in these fish. So something is triggering their immune systems. They're all expressing very strong antiviral gene activity, but piscine rheovirus, it appears, is not related to this gene expression. Um, And just to kind of check that, I looked at the relative expression of this particular genome fragment of the virus, and I compared that to... The expression of the antiviral gene activity and if it was a really strong relationship you would see this positive correlation between the virus levels and the MX expression levels but there may be a couple of outliers here that seem to be driving that relationship but really it could be even just a straight line so this is not a good evidence or good evidence of a strong relationship between those two factors. So, I'm still collecting data. I'm still working in the lab all the time, uh, screening the rest of the samples I have. I have about another 1,500 or so to go. Don't worry, I've got an undergraduate slave crew. They are getting some wonderful experience on their CVs, and they're helping me very much. <laughs> But I do have some next steps in mind. Um, So I'm going to continue to look at these gene expression assays to see if that pattern of strong antiviral response holds with other species and other life stages. I'm expanding the numbers of fish that I'm screening in each of my categories. I've got a backlog of the past three years. Um, And with increased numbers, that increases my precision of my estimates. It's always nice to, to have a little bit more. And I'm also going to be screening for additional viruses and other pathogens to try and understand what is driving that strong antiviral response. Is it an endemic pathogen? Is it one of these aquaculture-associated viruses? Um, So in summary, historically, we don't really think about infectious disease as being one of the primary causes of extinction of wildlife populations. They are, however, likely to cause impacts in small genetically homogeneous populations that have already been whacked down by some other cause, over exploitation or habitat degradation, etc. So, salmon populations through BC actually represent remnant populations of their previous size and strength and genetic diversity. Um, so this scenario is not uh, completely outrageous to apply to wild Pacific salmon. Also, we have uh, a very strong farmed Atlantic salmon population in our province. The production of farmed Atlantic salmon has outstripped the wild catch of Pacific salmon, Uh, so we've got quite a great deal of uh, susceptible, um, competent hosts in the environment of the wild Pacific salmon. And lastly, I've found evidence of this aquaculture-associated virus, piscine riovirus, in a remote environment that doesn't have direct contact with salmon farms, um, although I'm still interpreting what that actually means for that population. Um, Oh, And I have that preliminary evidence of the antiviral gene expression, which raises a lot more questions than I originally had. That's how science works. So last, what can we do? Well, We understand quite well this whole source-sync dynamic between domestic animal populations and high host densities and wild populations. This is not just theory. There's plenty of examples of how um, domestic animals can be spreading viruses to wild animals. So in observance of the precautionary principle, we could choose to push for barriers between farmed Atlantic salmon and wild Pacific salmon. That is a very real thing, and I know that Minister LeBlanc would welcome your phone calls and letters. Um, We should also be supporting additional baseline studies into pathogen diversity in wild animal populations because as climate change continues to become a more significant stressor, it will be interacting with this in new ways that are quite unanticipated, I'm sure. So just having a baseline understanding of what is out there and what could be an emergent threat is a really high priority. Um, We should also be advancing our monitoring and surveillance programs. There's some really cutting-edge technology out there that DFO has, Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Um, But unfortunately, it's not really accepting um, a lot of screening from communities who are asking for it. So we really have the capacity. It just needs to be opened up. Um, And wild populations... Uh, the restoration of wild populations should also be done with an eye to maintaining genetic diversity. We should not just be raising salmon in hatcheries to produce enormous sport fish. We should be raising salmon in hatcheries that have a really diverse immunological gene portfolio. So that is a consideration that has not been um, part of the management strategy thus far and really needs to be paid attention to. And lastly, we are all witnesses... And like I began, um, we have a duty to not be passive witnesses. We are playing an active role when we learn information, and we need to spread that information to people around us. So thank you to everybody who has made this project possible, all of my wonderful, incredible partners in the Wicano First Nation and other scientific peers, and the active public who listens to this work and disseminates it. Thank you very, very much for your time.